question it's going to take people a few moments to uh to jump on right um, so but uh while they do uh, i really appreciate your once again coming on um and we'll probably just start off with uh you know just kind of telling us about yourself and what you were you know tell us about yourself <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been interesting what we we're talking about before the 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 um, the fact that people just can't seem to get over this Confederate statue thing. Now I've read up about it. I'd like to know a little bit more of your thoughts about it. You know, what is this obsession with it? I mean, I'm sure that in your line of work, you've had to have conversations about that. Sure. You know, people want to claim as heritage. Uh, their ancestry fought in these in the Confederate uh, war. You know, you know, we don't condone slavery, but it's our heritage, it's our ancestry. Blah blah blah. Uh, some of them do condone condone slavery. But what they, yeah, <laughs> but you know what? The South has a lot to be proud of, a whole lot to be proud of. But slavery was not one of them. It was not one of those things. And and the majority of these statues were put up in the 1920s, the 50s, and the 60s as a slap in the face. To integration when integration was established and desegregation, um, these people are still fighting the Civil War. The Civil War may have ended officially, but unofficially it never ended. <coughs> it simply mutated. So we can no longer own you and keep you in chains and make you work for you know for for free, but. We're not going to let you drink from our water fountain. You can't use our restrooms. You got to sit in the back of the bus. Uh, if we allow you into our restaurant at all, you can't sit down. But you got to go through the back door and get your food and go back out. You know, that was a mutation of slavery because we once owned you. You were our property. You, you know, you weren't human beings. So then, you know, we were we were segregated. And then when laws were passed to uh, desegregate, uh, it didn't really end. It's, it mutated again, uh, where okay, so now we gotta we have to we have to uh, let you in, but uh, but we're not gonna let you sit with us. You're gonna have your own seating section, like at the at the bus station. There's a colored waiting room, and that you know, in the movie theater, you gotta sit in the peanut gallery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when that when that ended, it mutated again. Okay, so now we gotta hire you to work in our in our companies. But you're not going to have a desk job. You're going to, you know, mop the floors and clean the restroom. So you know it keeps mutating each time, uh, and this is a result of uh, of the after aftermath and after effects of slavery. You don't find that kind of thing happening in other countries where they did not own human beings. I have been to 57 different countries on six continents, starting at the age of three and I'm 62 years old right now. I've lived in Africa for 10 years. I lived in Europe. I've, I've been to Asia. I've been to Australia. I've been to South America. You know, I've seen a lot of people, ethnicities, cultures, religions. And I can tell you, um, no matter how far I've gone from this country to the other side of the earth and how many different people I've seen, how many different cultures I've been exposed to, I can tell you one thing, when I got back, I realized at the end of the day, everybody I met was, was a human being. And they all want the same four things we want. We want to be respected, we want to be loved, um, we want to be heard, and we want the same things for our family as they want for their family. 
And if we can understand that about one another, there wouldn't be so many problems out here. I often think that I'm being trolled when people tell me that it's, uh, you know, it's a symbol of heritage and my father. I don't know if I really believe that they believe that. We talk about the Confederate statues. I don't know if I believe that they believe that. I think that they absolutely know that this is a symbol of hatred, a symbol of white supremacy, and we wish that we would have one and we're going to stick it up in people's faces. Uh, am I wrong in that? <laughs> um, some people don't realize it. Some people definitely, yes, you know, that, that is their attitude. And there are others who are just, for lack of a better word, ignorant. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean in a sense that they are unaware and unlearned of their history. Number one, the flag that we're... Okay, is that me or am I frozen or is Brother Davis gone or... Can you guys still hear me? Am I frozen or is he frozen? Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, okay, you're, you're back. You vanished okay. on me for a while. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was saying that, uh, yes, you are, you are correct with some people, but some people are just plain ignorant, not uh, in a derogatory sense, but just in a sense that they, they are unaware of their history. They are unlearned. And uh, anybody who really knows history and knows the Confederacy knows that that particular flag that we're talking about is not the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is a different flag of the Confederacy. That particular flag was used during the, during the Confederacy, but it was the battle flag. It was used in the battle of the Civil War when the Confederacy fought against the Union. And that war was fought to preserve slavery on the side of the Confederacy. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. Yeah, the states' right to own slaves. <laughs> That's what it was. Right. You know, don't give me the states' rights stuff. Um, right, 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 right. You know, and then when you keep saying, you know, well, it's about heritage, it's not hate, it's heritage. Okay, well, for some people, you know, that's how, how they may think. But here's what I, what I propose to them, and I've done this before. Um, if you really, really believe that stands for heritage, and, and, and you tell me you don't want anything to do with the Ku Klux Klan, they're a hate organization, that's not you, you abhor them, etc. All you have to do is Google KKK rally, Klan rally. You'll see all kinds of robes and hoods carrying Confederate flags. All right. I say, I, I go to a lot of Klan rallies. I say, come go to a Klan rally with me. And when you see one of those people that you abhor carrying your flag, you tell them that's not what it's about, to give you back your flag. And if you do that, whether they give it back to you or not, I will come over your house and I will take your Confederate flag and I will hoist it up your pole for you and, and fly it for you. I have yet to have any takers. Uh, I'm sure. And that's exactly my point is that I don't know if they really sub subconsciously believe that. I don't know why they're saying it, what their motivation is. Well, you know, ch change, change is something that, that, you know, that we all, um, have difficulty dealing with, you know, and I, I'll, I'll use an example, and this is not a um, a, a put down uh, on, on women because men, men have, have have their own issues as well. But you know, we've seen plenty of, of women who have been uh, battered and beaten 
by by their boyfriends or their husbands and and they stay around you know they they don't leave and they're told you know one day he's going to kill you you know just get out get out and they stick around because they don't want that change they they they'd rather stay with something with which they're familiar than to go out and try to break in something new all right and then what happens finally the guy beats them within inches of their life and they finally leave they finally leave and they end up with somebody else and what kind of relationship is that the same one that they knew back home another abuser because they don't like change it's a psychological thing uh when i when i uh, graduated high school before going to college i worked for a couple months uh, at a uh, moving company and uh, you know we move people from washington dc down to florida or from washington dc you know half an hour away in, into the state of maryland or northern virginia or whatever um and these are people who are all excited about their move you know they're, they're, get, they're getting a new house etc um and then as soon as we come in and start moving the couch the table they begin freaking out it's that change you know that people are, are not accustomed to and even though they you know they want things to get better uh, they feel very un unstable when you when you pull up their roots, and, and and that's that's just a psychological thing that we have to address with with human beings. I mean, and we're the same way. In your in your line, what obviously we're, we're speaking with uh, Daryl Davis. Uh, you have taken over two hundred clan hoods from people. Is that the way you express it? Gotten two hundred people <clears throat> out of the clan. Uh, yeah, I have. Um, well, people over two hundred white supremacists have okay. have renounced that ideology. Some of them, okay. a lot of them, Klan members. Uh, some of them neo Nazis. Some of them alt right type people. Some of them just individual uh, white supremacists. I have probably fifty some uh, robes and hoods, but uh, just just over two hundred people. Okay. Okay. Very nice. So thank you very much for your work. I mean, I know it's got to be daunting. Are people still reaching out to you to try to to? get out of their life or absolutely or people you know will email me and say hey you know i heard you on such and such a podcast or i saw you on on some interview with on the news you know and you know you made me think um you know i, I want to leave you is there any chance we can have a conversation i even had somebody from georgia i didn't even know mail me their clan robe oh wow. yeah i mean i don't even know this person but the the person you know found my email on my website or whatever and and said you know hey you know i got this thing i want you know, i'm done i want to want to get out, you know, would you like it? Because, you know, they know I collect them. I'm going to open a museum at some point. And uh, right now I'm going to loan my, my, a lot of my uh, belongings to the Orlando Holocaust um, uh, Museum and Center. And they're going to put on an exhibition in the fall and then it will tour the country and come back to me. And by the, I have my 501c3. So hopefully at some point I'll be able to, to afford a building, you know, that I can house my stuff in. So in your line of of work and, and dealing with people like that, uh, what has been their motivation? Have you? I know we want to play amateur psychologist right now. Sure. What, what, what's their motivation for joining these organizations? Well, there are different motivations. Um, it depends. It could be, you know, my my uh, my grandfather was in the Klan, and my father was in the Klan, so I'm in the Klan, and my kids are going to be in the Klan. So a family tradition passed down kind of thing. Other people they might join for um, a socioeconomic reason. Uh, for example, let's say you have a town that's big on coal mining. Um, a lot of coal miners are white people. And usually when you get into that field, 
it's a family thing. You know, they've been doing it for generations. Uh, you know, grandfather, father, son, you know, on down the line, right out of high school, right into the coal mines. And that's all they know, digging coal, right? You give them a broom, ask them to sweep the floor. They don't know how to do that. That, you know, the coal, digging coal is their thing and they're good at it. So the company that employs them, that's been employing them, um, comes to the decision, you know what? We could, we could, we could uh, save a lot of money. Let's lay off these workers and hire some of those, uh, uh, people who just came into the country, you know, some of these immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal, doesn't matter. Just hire them because we can pay them that much money. You know, we're paying these people this much money. So, you know, we can save all this money and just lay them off. Now, these white workers who are working in the coal mines, I'm just using the coal mines as just an example. These are not racist people. They're happy. They They have a job. They're paying their bills. They can pay their mortgage. They can put food on their family's table, put clothes on their kids' backs, et cetera. You know, when somebody is happy, they don't hate other people. You know, they're happy for their families, they're happy for you. So um, these people get laid off and now they are out of work. They can't get any other kind of job. They're not trained for any other kind of job. That's all they know is digging the coal. So um, they got some people from who, who just came into the country or whatever, working these jobs, you know, for pennies on the dollar. And um, the Klan knows that. The Klan will come to one of those towns and hold a rally and say, you know, the blacks have the NAACP, the Jews have the ADL, nobody stands up for the white man but the Ku Klux Klan. You know, your job's not gone, but you're gone. You know, some such and such and such and such has your job. You know, you come join us, we'll get your job back. You can't even put food on your on your family's table. You can't put clothes on your kid's back uh, because, because you lost your job to one of those people. You know, come join us. And these are, like I said, these people who are not racist, they, you know, they would have no reason to join the Klan, but they think, you know what? The bank's knocking on my door. They want their, their mortgage money. They want their rent money. And um, I don't have it. What do I have to lose? Give me an application. And they, you know, because they're looking to believe in something. And so they join that way. Or if you move into a town that is a, a strong type of, uh, you know, racist town, a, a Klan town, just like a gang, you, you, you move into a section of the city that's, that's run by the gang. You make up your mind, you know, either you join or you, or you get out. Uh, so, you know, if you want to do business in that town, uh, you want to join the local chamber of commerce, you want to join the local country club, you want to join the local Ku Klux Klan. It's just how the town works, you know, the network. I want to ask you about the gang life. Do, you, do a lot of people come from broken homes, as in gangs, right? Do people are pre preying on people who are vulnerable? Uh, that, that is one of the re, uh, uh, recruitment tactics, sure. A lot of them come from broken homes or dysfunctional families, maybe alcoholism, things like that. But there are also those who, who, who don't have any uh, dysfunction at home. You know, they read the wrong book, you know, went down the wrong path or with the wrong friends and things like that. Um, you know, not, not everybody who, uh, who joins comes from a, from a racist background, you know, but, uh, but a lot of them do. And, and those people are vulnerable because they've never been nurtured. They've never felt like they belong to anything. And then when, when the Klan or the Nazis or whoever, uh, sees that, that, that vulnerability, yeah, sure. They prey upon it. And then that becomes their family more so than their biological family. And, uh, you know, they do a ritual to get in and they do a blood oath and all that kind of stuff. So now, you know, they're brothers, they're, you know, they're bound together. And when, you know, if they leave, 
after you know whatever time they retire from it and go away quietly, that's fine. But if you leave and you renounce it, then you might have some ramifications because you know you 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 betrayed. You're, you're a race trader now. You betrayed your family. Do you think the people at the top of these organizations, right? I'm not talking about the about the middle to lower men. The people mm -hmm. that's tippy tippy top actually believe the stuff that they're saying, or are they just using it for uh, power, prestige, all that? Kind yeah, of stuff? They, there are both. There are those who truly believe it, and then there are those who are opportunists. And we have that in the black community too. Mm -hmm. You know, people who would take advantage of somebody who will believe in them and edify them. And so, yeah, you know, there there are are uh, people who who use a racist agenda because they know it, it appeals to certain people and, um, and, and they will get their followers, they'll get their donations and their money and give them power. Uh, so yes, there are people who will self enrich and exploit their own for that. And that goes on both sides of, of the, of the fence. Mm. I want to, we talked about this a little bit before we got online here. I want to get your thoughts on the, uh, the, the protests that are going on right now. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that uh, a page is turning in our history. I think that this is probably the greatest thing that has happened thus far in the 21st century. Uh, it's a bittersweet thing because a lot of uh, deaths have happened in this country due to the uh, coronavirus, but also have, had it not been for the coronavirus, there would be a lot less people out there protesting because most of these people have jobs they have to go to and because they had to be home on lockdown or their or their jobs were closed down because of the virus, they had the opportunity to go out and uh, and protest. They also had the opportunity to see what was happening uh, in our streets, see, actually see the things that they've been hearing about for decades and they didn't believe. Because, you know, we, we've always known these things have happened, uh, but, uh, you know, well, where's the evidence? You know, how can you prove it? Well, it, because, you know, it wasn't only until uh, somebody like George Halliday, who, uh, who was an ordinary citizen, but he could afford a video camera. Uh, before then, the only people who had video cameras with TV stations had these big things they carry on their shoulders, and they cost thousands of dollars. No, the average citizen couldn't afford one of those, but George Halliday did, and he filmed the Rodney King thing. And, you know, that was our first, uh, you know, not our first, but the world's first seeing what we've been talking about. And even then, a lot of them didn't believe it. They thought it was some anomaly. But now we're seeing it more and more and more because people have uh, video cameras on their cell phones. And you know, so people, you know, at first they're thinking, it's happening more, why, why are these things happening so often? No, it's not happening more and more, it's that we're seeing it more and more because we have the videos, that's all. It's like, uh, I explained to somebody like this, you know, Somebody once said, you know, why, why are there so many more gay people today than there were, you know, when I was growing up? No, there have always been gay people, but they are more accepted today. That's why you, 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 you think they're more, you know, they're able to come out and express themselves more today than they could 30, 40 years ago. So it's the same thing with this kind of stuff. So people are seeing that and they're joining in because they have a conscience. And this is what is taking for us to turn that page, that collective voice, because <clears throat> um, white people have always been involved in our protests, starting back in 1955 with uh, Rosa Parks and uh, and the bus boycott. 
on through the 60s with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. But we have never before seen this many white people involved in our protests. And in the past, when it was just us and a, and a few you know, smattering of white people, the powers that be had their ears plugged up and closed. They didn't want to hear what we had to say. They shut us down. But now they are seeing a mass of people who look just like them joining us. And now they're pulling the cotton out of their ears or else putting in their, ear, their hearing aids. And now they're listening. And that's why things are changing. It's that collective force. It's the same thing with uh, 2008 with uh, Barack Obama. Black people did not put Barack Obama in the White House. White people put Barack Obama in the White House. We are only 12%. And the 12% of black people in this country, a lot of them are not registered to vote. A lot of them are too young to, to vote, even if they, you know, they're too young to even register. But if you were to take every black person from adult, I mean, from, from infant to adult, and all of them could vote, that still would not have been enough to put Barack Obama in the White House. We're only 12%. We needed additional people. And we got it in the form of white people who by 2008, there were enough of them who had the attitude, hey, I like that guy's policies. I'm gonna vote for him, despite whatever color he is. 20 years ago, Barack Obama could never have become president, even though he may have even had the same policies because the attitude was not there at that present time. Over the years, there have been many black people who could have uh, led this country and, and, and run it right as a president, but they were not given the chance because the attitude was not ready the, the, of the majority. By 2008, there was enough of that attitude that was ready, and that's what put him in the White House. By 2020, there, were, there was enough of that attitude to join us in our marches mm. and demand change. That collective is what changes things. That's what put Barack Obama in office. That's what's making these changes today. And that's what we need to focus on. Back in 2006, the, uh, the FBI released a report stating that the, uh, the white supremacist would infiltrate or try to infiltrate or infiltrate <laughs> police departments in the military. Have you seen any of that in your in your work? Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and I know uh, white supremacists. I know the I know clan leaders who've been in the in the in the uh, police departments, not just the military, but in the actual city police departments. I have the robe and hood and the police uniform from somebody uh, who was on the Baltimore City Police Force. He was the Grand Dragon of Maryland, which means state leader. Uh, I have yeah, I have his uniform. I have his his clan robe and everything like that. He was not an undercover cop on the Baltimore City PD. He was a bona fide, um, uh, I mean, uh, not an undercover cop in the Ku Klux Klan. He was a bona fide Klansman on the Baltimore City PD. And yes, uh, the military does have a lot of those people. Uh, Camp Lejeune uh, had, a, had a whole regiment of people uh, that, were, that were in there. And, uh, and that dates back to, to even, even before the um, uh, 2006, back into the 1970s, and even before that, uh, the spy, John Walker, one of, one of the worst spies in this country. Uh, he was a Navy uh, a cryptographer, deciphering codes. And he was also the, uh, the uh, chief uh, Klan recruiter. And on, on the uh, ship, the uh, USS um, was it Nimitz. You know, so it, it goes way back. And, and now what they're doing is the Klan is 
is preying upon a lot of these returning veterans from um, Afghanistan and Iraq because they have military training and they recruit them to, to, to train, to train the, the people back here uh, because you know, they're planning for the race war. Uh, and what they tell you is that uh, your, the, the, the color of your skin is your uniform. And so the race war that they're planning is called Rahowa, R-A-H-O-W-A, which stands for racial holy war. It's also called the Boogaloo. So either, either term, Rahowa or Boogaloo. And this is why, you know, every time you see uh, one of these people get busted and their home gets raided or their compound gets raided, what do they find? A whole cache of automatic weapons. That is for the upcoming race war. And what we're seeing is um, what, what the neo-Nazis and the Klan and the alt-right people tell me is, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They're calling it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. They're seeing the color of their landscape changing. And see, this country was built on a two-tier society, white supremacy and slavery. And through the decades as it progressed, it progressed like this. It did not progress like this. Every time this, this one wanted to come up, this one pushed it back down. This one's not gonna come up and help it up. So it wants to keep that, that proportion there. So with people coming in from other places of darker skin color, this is happening automatically. And so, you know, when they say, come, you know, so they're stepping up their recruitment efforts and saying, come join us. You know, we're going to take our country back. We're going to get rid of all this illegal immigration and blah. We're going to build that wall, keep people out, so forth and so on. Well, when they talk about illegal immigration, they are not talking about illegals here from Canada or the UK <laughs> or Eastern Europe, right? right. <laughs> they are talking about, you know, South America, Mexico, West Africa, things like that. Um, so that's... And so people, you know, they, they appeal to the fear in those people that their landscape is changing because basically there is no more white flight. You know, white flight was a big thing back in the day. You know, your neighborhood was all white and then somebody starts moving in and somebody else and somebody else. Next thing you know, you're the only person in your neighborhood who looks like you. So, you know, you, you move out to another white neighborhood and now you move so often and there's so many people here, you can't find any neighborhood that's all white. So. They're seeing that landscape change and their back is up against the wall and they can't go anywhere. So that's why all these groups are stepping up their recruitment and saying, hey, we're gonna take our country back. We're gonna make America great again, all right? So these people who fear, who fear what's going on out here are joining these groups to take our country back. But when it doesn't happen, then they get frustrated and they say, you know what? If the Klan can't do it and the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they go out by themselves, walk into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shoot up everybody, or into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, shoot up everybody, the uh, Walmart in El Paso, shoot up everybody. You know, these are lone wolves. And while we have intelligence agencies and operatives who can infiltrate these, these organizations and these groups, these movements, and gather intelligence, and oftentimes, um, squash you know, or foil some plot. You cannot infiltrate a lone wolf. It's only one person. And here's what's going to happen. And I, I'm an optimist. 
So I may sound pessimistic, but I am an optimist, but I'm also a realist. I, I know it's, I've been doing this for 35 years. I see what's going on. I know the players. Um, as In 2042, which is only 22 years from right now, it's right around the corner, this country will be like this. It will be 50-50, 50% white, 50% non-white. And that is freaking people out. There are plenty of white people who embrace that. So, hey, you know, that's evolution. That's what happens. I welcome it. I don't have a problem with it. But there are others who are becoming unhinged and disconcerted with the idea. Because once you sat on the, on the throne of power for 401 years since 1619, you don't want to get off that throne. Nobody wants, wants to abdicate power or abdicate their throne. So they're going to do everything they can to keep that throne. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves. And, and we have to be, be vigilant because they are becoming unhinged. They're the ones who say, well, you know, if the, if the group can't do it, I'll do it myself. So I want to say hello to everyone who's in the chat here. Uh, Mark Neal, Chris Casey, Chris Smith, Mike McKenna, uh, Zakia, Elaine. And uh, Chris Casey says, an old friend who used to teach at the FBI Academy told me years ago that the only thing that, can, that is constant is change. Two true words. So thank you for any of that. Uh, anybody, anybody else has a comment, make sure you drop them. Any questions, make sure that you drop them. Uh, so I want to ask you about, uh, and, and thank you for all that. That was, that was I mean, listen, I, I've heard for, for a long time now that exactly what you're saying, that a lot of people are freaking out and we're going to continue to see these types of, 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 of you, you, you remember, wolf shooters. You remember um, 1999, right? You're a young man. You don't remember that year. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that young. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you remember 1999? Everybody was freaking about, freaking out about 2000. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y2K. Y2K. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my VCR won't work anymore and so forth and so on. <laughs> you know, that anxiety. That's the same anxiety that's happening with these people about 2042. It's that same anxiety that, that the whole world is going to, you know, end because... They're going to be off their throne, and the people who who they've oppressed for four uh, four hundred years are going to start oppressing them. They have all these, you know, things going and, on in their mind, and that that is so key. And and if you just could convince them that that we are really not interested in doing it, exactly. <laughs> we really aren't. We have better things to do. <laughs> we have better things to do. We are we are not interested in that. And so, if, you know, I don't know if that really sheds a light on some people, but. That is the furthest thing from our mind. <laughs> Having gone through oppression, we are not trying to right. trying to oppress anyone else. Um, anxiety and fear is so true. This is from uh, Mark Neal. So I want to ask you about uh, your ideas about police reform. Um, what are, What are your thoughts about that? You know what I would like to see, and um, I I am very pro law enforcement, but a lot needs to be done to change the way it operates. Uh, my father was one of the first black secret service agents in this country. My father wanted to be an FBI agent. And uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was a racist, a male chauvinist, a cross-dresser, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, he wasn't hiring any black people. He wasn't hiring any women. Um, so my father went to the secret service. Uh, Harry Anslinger was the man who ran the secret service at the time and was all white. And Harry Anslinger hired five black men at the same time. And my father was one of those five. 
and my father rose through the ranks, but there was still a ceiling, you know, because they wouldn't let him go too high. And uh, there have been books written about him and all the things that he did uh, and, and, uh, and cases that he solved, et cetera. Um, that he got to work with Interpol and all that kind of thing. And he was ended up training agents and police officers who were getting promoted above him because of that ceiling. So that's when he left and joined the Foreign Service. But, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I have a, a high regard for law enforcement, but it needs to be fixed. And some of the things that I think need to happen is, let me, let me give you three things. Number one, when, um, when people uh, apply, you know, for the police academy or apply to be an officer, you know, they have to take a test. And I, you know, each department across the country or even within the state, you know, works a little differently. Um, here where I am, you know, they, they give a polygraph, a, uh, a oral test and a uh, written test. And where are you at? I'm in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, okay. right outside of Washington, DC. And uh, some of the questions asked is, you know, have you ever used cocaine? Uh, do you have an alcohol problem? I mean, have you ever had an issue with alcohol? Uh, how do you feel about homosexuality? Why are you asking about homosexuality? Well, because that is a segment of our population. You know, they need to know that you're going to treat them as as well as well as you treat anybody else. They're human beings just like anybody else. So you're not going to have to show any bias. Okay, fine. But why isn't there a question? Do you have racial any racial bias? That question is not on the test. Right. So I would say that money needs to be allocated. You know, when you talk about defunding uh, the police and that kind of thing, it's not to take in my in my in my thing. I don't want to see salaries be reduced or taken away because I think you know police are underpaid to begin with. But uh, the the extra money that is built into the budget for other things beyond salary needs to be some of it needs to be taken and and applied towards hiring. Um, behavioral psychologists like they have at the FBI uh, who, who develop criminal profiles uh, like John Douglas, for example, who wrote the first book on criminal profiling for the FBI. Um, because they've studied hundreds and thousands of cases, they know what, it, what it, you know, the profile of a serial killer or a serial rapist. No, they're not always 100% accurate, but they can come close. They can give you a, a pretty good ballpark uh, you know, a guesstimate or a speculation on on what this person does and how old he is and what color he is, et cetera, how he thinks. Um, these people are trained. Bring them in to the police. Let them develop a a test for for racial bias. And there are those tests out there. Harvard has one. Harvard University has the implicit bias test. But they can develop one specifically for a police department. And, uh, and and let them administer the test and observe, you know, the people when they do the oral exam or whatever, the polygraph. And, you know, if they're showing racial bias, then don't hire them or else put them behind a desk or something. Keep them in the building. Don't, don't let them be out on the street, especially in an area where I am, excuse me, where this is a very, very diverse area. I'm only 15 minutes from Washington, D.C., you know, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in, in the world. So you're going to run into all kinds of people right here in the suburbs. Um, you don't need to be insulting people, whether you have a bias or, or, you're, just, or you're just ignorant and, and don't know how to handle somebody uh, who, who may not have grown up in this country with our culture. So let those behavioral psychologists determine if somebody has a racial bias or not, and that will be part of the exam. And if they do, don't give them a job on the street. Number, number two, 
I think there needs to be a mechanism, uh, a national registry for police officers uh, who have been dismissed or who've gotten in, into egregious uh, or gotten into a lot of trouble for some egregious act, whether it's excessive force or unjustifiable homicide or whatever. Because what happens with these people in the, in the rare instance that they get fired and charged and dismissed or whatever, what do they do? They just go join another police department and carry on with the same behavior. There, there's no ramification. You know, they're trained to be police officers. That's all they know how to do. Sort of like the coal miner or they get into security or whatever, but they need a national registry. Um, we don't have one. It's sort of like what we keep hearing about uh, a Catholic priest who has abused some, some kid and he gets shifted around to another parish and it starts all over again and then he gets shifted somewhere else and there's and there's no there's no recourse until maybe 40 years later you know the the person is a drug addict and 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 uh and an alcoholic i'm talking about what the abuse victim and he comes forward and talks about it and then 10 other people come forward and say yeah that happened to me too 40 years ago and then the the church tries to settle with them out of court that doesn't change that person's behavior that person need, needs to pay for what they did and be on a registry so they cannot go from church to church to church and continue that behavior. Uh, the only register we have is the uh, you know sex re uh, offender registry. So if somebody abused some little kid in New York and got on the uh, the national registry, he or she can't go out to uh, Los Angeles and get a job at, at some kindergarten or, or some Boy Scout troop because they're on the registry. So that's how you protect these things. We need to be able to protect the citizens from rogue police officers as well. That's number two, so a national registry. Uh, I understand that uh, that there is some legislation, uh, federal legislation, but hasn't no, nobody has moved on it yet, but they are, they are, it's just being talked about. Um, the third thing is this. We hear a lot about uh, two categories of police. We hear about the good cops and we hear about the bad cops. Uh, there's a third category that we never hear about. And this is a minority category. When I say minority, I don't mean in terms of skin color, I'm talking about in terms of numbers. Um, we all know what a, uh, a bad cop does. A good cop will not do those things, but the good cop turns a blind eye to what's going on and does not tell on his partner or one of his colleagues because of that blue wall or blue coat of silence. Um, so the third category is the honest cop. And the honest cop does tell. And as a result of him telling and, and violating that, that blue code of silence, he is endangering his own safety from his fellow officers. When he goes on a call and he needs backup, you know, and, and his, you know, he goes across the airwaves and they know, oh, this guy, you know, he, he was a snitch. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go help him or, or I'm going to arrive very slowly. And he ends up getting shot or something like that. Um, you know, a lot of young people don't know the story of uh, Frank Serpico, um, but I mean, I'm sure you do. And um, but, you know, that's a, that's a good movie to, to watch, a true story about an NYPD officer who was an honest cop. And as a result, he almost got killed by his own people. Um, there needs, you know, so there needs to be a mechanism by which because, you know, if you're a good cop and you're seeing all this stuff go down and and you're not um, exposing it you might as well be complicit in it 
just like just like the guy who drives a getaway car but didn't shoot the teller. You know, he, he's still part of that bank robbery. Yeah. Um, so there needs to be a mechanism like we have for citizens, where when the police cannot solve a crime, they they advertise. You know, you can call this no, tip tip line. You can call this number anonymously. You don't have to leave your name. Just give us the information. What did you see? Who did you see? Etc. Um, and you get a reward or whatever. Police officers also need something like that, where they can report that kind of behavior. Um, because you know what? When when the PIO, the public information officer, or the chief uh, comes out and says and makes a, a comment after a, a police officer has been accused of something uh, before he goes to trial, something like that, usually it's either no comment or he followed proper police procedure. Those, those are always the catchphrases. But then in the rare instances where this particular cop is convicted, then the PIO or the chief comes out and says, well, you know, in, in a department this large, there are bound to be a few bad apples. No, I'm sorry. In my opinion, there are more bad apples than there are good apples. Because if there were so many good apples, why don't, the, and, and just a few bad apples, why don't the good apples coalesce together and get rid of those bad apples? Because you don't want one cop or two or three cops, just a few people, tarnishing your badge when you are out here working your butt off to do the right thing and, and, and one guy over here is screwing up. Like you look at the, at the one police officer who, uh, who knelt on the, uh, on the neck of uh, George Floyd. He, he's painted the entire Minneapolis Police Department. He, that, that's what he represents now and that's what people view as that, as that, as that police department. And that's not fair to the good and honest officers who don't do that kind of thing in that department. So, and there had been 18 complaints against this guy in his 19 year career on that department. If somebody had listened perhaps to just one of those 18 voices that complained, perhaps he could have been reprimanded, counseled, or put behind a desk or done some other kind of job and uh, Mr. Floyd might be alive today. But 18 complaints, nothing was done. Can you imagine a doctor working in a hospital, working for a hospital who had 18 complaints of malpractice against him? That hospital would not be, still be, a, be employing that doctor. Um, if, if I had, <laughs> you, don't, you don't know anybody who has 18 DWIs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, seriously, um, right, right. you know, when you, know, when, when, you, when you are given a, um, uh, when you, when you're given, you take the oath of a of police officer uh, to, to be sworn and, to, and, and, and serve and protect that oath, you know, you're essentially given a 007 license, a license to kill. And, and you have to, you know, be accountable for that. You know, that's your license. And, and certainly if, if it's called for, you use that license. Um, but you also have to be accountable if you use it uh, illegally as well. And um, we're, not, we're not seeing that accountability when somebody has 18 complaints against them in a 19-year career, something is wrong. Uh, you know, one DWI is gonna get you, you know, get your license suspended, two probably get you revoked. Uh, well, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. I know you you got to wind down here in a minute here. I want I'm, to ask. Keep on going. I'm I'm good with you. 
Okay. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, what, what should the police do to re repair their reputation, to reach out to the public? What should the police do? I think they should uh, be have more have more community organized meetings, not after every time something happens. Have these things throughout the year. Be proactive so people get to know the police and be able to cooperate with the police and corroborate uh, with them when 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 the police don't have the evidence that they need. Um, you know, don't don't just come to people and and have meetings and and try to build community after somebody gets killed by the police. Do it throughout the year. You know, it used to be a time a long time ago when when police knew everybody on the block. You know, they knew your name, they knew your mama's name, they knew what your dad did for a job. You know, and there was a relationship. That is the real community policing. Okay, and you know, we need to get back to that. We need to have people um, have more respect for the police, but also it has to be the other way around where the police have, have respect for the people as well. And I think um, a citizen's review board is necessary. Um, I think we need an outside body other than internal affairs. Uh, internal affairs is fine, but there needs to be an outside body also that can review that. Just like, you know, when you go to court, if uh, if a doctor is a or a police officer is is the defendant, um, you know during the voir dire, right? The prosecutor is going to ask the uh, the jury, is anybody in the jury a doctor or working in the medical field or whatever? And if they are, they get excused. You bring in another jury, uh, so that way you have twelve people who are totally unbiased, totally unrelated to the defendant's line of work. And uh, you know, so how do you? How do you have that unbiased thing um, with uh, with internal affairs? I know, you know, I've, I, I've dealt with internal affairs before plenty of times, and I know that there are some very honest, decent uh, police officers in internal affairs who do their job, and they will bust you if you have done something wrong. But I also know ones, and we've gotten rid of some where I live, uh, who who will not do their job, they will cover up. And and if if a cop on the street complains about one of their fellow cops to the brass, it has a way of leaking down to the street. It's not kept confidential. Uh, so, you know, that needs to be addressed. That's why there needs to be an, an outside mechanism, you know, where, where people can go to and, and have that, you know, that check and balance. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Uh, I want to put uh, Chris Casey's uh, comment up here. Mr. Davis is right about the blue wall of silence. Time to tear it down, uh, in my honest opinion. And then uh, my good friend, Retired Detective Karen Rudy is saying hello, Captain, to us. So if anyone has any questions or comments for Mr. Davis, now is the time to shoot them to me. Um, and so I want to ask you another question. Um, we've been talking so much about this. Let's talk about things that go on in, in, in our community. I'm going to have another podcast that's totally dedicated to this. But I want to ask you and get your opinion, right? We see what's going on in Chicago. Uh, New York is not blowing up with more shootings. You know, how do we get some of these communities under control? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. There, there is a lot going on. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think again, you know, building community with with the police, uh, and and also, um, I know here where where we are, they used to have internal affairs people in uniform, and then about maybe eighteen twenty years ago, they took them out of uniform. And put them in a separate building, internal affairs. So they're 
there in suit and tie. And I questioned that because I disagreed with it completely, and I still do. Um, the reason why they, they explained that they did that is because there are so many people here in this area from foreign countries, uh, and in their countries, you know, the police were very brutal uh, with them and beat them. So, you know, when they see a uniform, they're all freaked out. You know, they don't want to go and complain. They're, they fear retaliation, et cetera. So they're more relaxed when they're around somebody in a suit and tie and that kind of thing, because the uniform just triggers, you know, negative emotions. Okay, I get that. But what you're doing, though, is you are reinforcing what they already believe, that the, that the uniform is bad. So and so subliminally, you're, you're training them and brainwashing them to think, okay, there are two sets of cops. The cops in the suit and tie are the good cops. The cops with the badge and the gun, the uniform, are the bad cops. So I want to stay away from those people and only cooperate with these people. No, we want people to respect all police officers in a uniform. Okay, so, you know, you, you've got, to, and, and how do you do that? You've got to show them that not everybody in a uniform is, is going to brutalize them. You know, you, you know, you can talk to us. You can, you know, we can help you. We hit, are, are there some bad people who do that? Yes, absolutely. But there are also some bad people in suits and ties. You know, people say to me, you know, how can you have these robes and hoods in your house and these clan things? You know, you know it's scary. You know, it's scary. Listen, there are people who wear a suit and tie, who wear a Hawaiian shirt and Bermuda shorts, who wear a T-shirt and a pair of jeans, or who wear a black judge's robe or a uniform with a, with a badge and gun who feel and think just like the guy in the robe and hood. So it's not what you're wearing. It's what's in your heart and what's in your mind, how you're feeling and how you're thinking. So we need to get over what somebody dresses like and understand where they're coming from. I would rather see somebody in a robe and hood than see somebody in a suit and tie or a badge yeah. and, gun and not know where they're coming from. Yeah, I, I want to see who, who who exactly these people are. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So tell us tell us a story about your toughest nut to crack, the, the person you had the toughest time convincing to come out of that. that well, lifestyle. see, I, I never I never try to convince anybody to come out. You know, see the the, the media. Uh, you know, they whatever you see my name, whatever it says. You know, black musician converts. You know, X number of Klansmen or convinces so many to leave the organization. No, I did not even convert one person. I have been the impetus for over 200 to renounce their ideology and change, all right? I planted the seed, they converted themselves. And here's how you do this, okay? I, I, I had a racist experience when I was a kid at the age of 10. Uh, I was the only black scout in a, in a uh, Cub Scout march along with some other organizations. And everybody was happy, everybody was cheering us, except when we got to one point, a small group mixed in with a larger crowd began throwing uh, bottles and soda pop cans and stuff at me. And um, I was 10 years old, 1968, and I did not understand it. I thought, first of all, I thought the people did not like the scouts. That's how naive I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, later my parents explained to me uh, what racism was, and I didn't understand it. My 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me, who had never spoken to me, who knew nothing about me would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It just didn't make any sense. And so I formed a question at that age, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. So who better to ask than someone who would go so far as to join an organization 
that has over a hundred year history of, of practicing hating people who don't look like them who, or who don't believe as they believe. So that's why I would go to Klan people or neo-Nazis and people like that. Um, so in, in, in interviewing these people, you know, I might ask that question. And some of the answers I get, you know, I'm, I'm sitting two and a half feet away from somebody right there, you know, somebody who hates me, you know, in a Robin Hood or what have you. And they're telling me, well, Mr. Davis, you know, uh, you black people, uh, you know, you're prone to crime. You all are criminals. Well, why do you say that? Well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is look at the prison system. There, there are more black people in prison than there are white people. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, this is a half truth. Uh, he has a point there, but there are more black people in prison than white people, but he is not considering the inequity in the, in the uh, judicial system. He's not considering the fact that there are plenty of black people and white people who are poor, who are in prison, who may not even belong there, but they are there because they could not afford adequate legal representation. So there they sit. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know, black people are inherently lazy. Uh, we don't want to work. We prefer to scam the government welfare system and take advantage of all the government handouts. Uh, and also black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the larger the brain, the more room for intelligence, IQ, the higher their IQ. And so I'm asking, well, where did you get this information? Well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is look at the uh, SAT scores. Uh, black kids in schools consistently score lower than, than white kids. Okay, that's true too. But we're not giving the equal opportunities for education. You know, the, the, be the best teachers, the best facilities, the best textbooks, the best latest and greatest computers and things that, you know, that these suburban schools have. Um, I don't say that yet, okay? I'm just listening to him. Now, is, <clears throat> is what he is saying offensive? Yes, it is absolutely offensive. Am I offended by it? Absolutely not. Why would I, why would I be offended by a lie? The man is speaking an untruth. So why should I let that offend me? Don't let my emotions get in the way or my ego get in the way. Because when this guy comes into the room, he's a Klansman, he's a Klan leader, and he sees me, his wall goes up because I'm the enemy, all right? So he's gonna be pushing back against me. I'm the criminal, I'm lazy, my brain is small, I have no, no intelligence, etc. I'm inferior. That wall is up. And normally when somebody does that, the, the, the other person like me will push back no, you're the criminal. You're the one burning crosses in people's yards. You're the one bombing somebody's church, killing four little black girls. And you're the one hanging people from trees. I'm not the criminal. You know, that's what they're used to. They're used to that. They've been hearing that all their lives. Every time they say something like this. So I don't say any of that. I just let them talk. Because like I told you, one of those four things that everybody wants is to be heard. So I'm going to let him be heard. Why should I fear what he's saying? He, he obviously is not talking about me because he doesn't know me. He only met me five, 10 minutes ago. So he's gonna make all these assertions about me just because he sees this, the color of my skin. I know who I am. Now, if my parents told me I was lazy and I was a criminal, maybe I might put a little more uh, heat into that because my parents brought me into this world and they raised me and they know me. But somebody who doesn't know me, why would I be offended by a lie? Don't let your emotions get in the way. So because I, I allowed him to say what he had to say, his I threw him off his game and his wall comes down, all right? So when the wall comes down, 
then you have an opportunity to plant a seed on the other side of the wall. Because if you try to plant the seed while the wall is up, the seed's just gonna bounce off the wall and fall back on your side, all right? So you, you let that wall come down. And then when the wall is down, he feels compelled to let you speak because it's very rare that he can get out everything that he wants to say, especially to an enemy, because usually the enemy pushes back. So I didn't push back. So he was able to say all he wanted to say. So his wall is down. Now it's my turn. Rather than attack him and tell him how wrong I am, I mean, I mean how wrong he is, rather than go on the offense, I simply defend myself. All right, so that way I keep the wall, because if, if I attack him and tell him he's wrong, his wall starts going back up. So I leave the wall down and I defend myself. I said, well, look, you know, I don't have a criminal record. Nobody in my family has a criminal record. I have never been on welfare. Nobody in my family's on welfare. Uh, in terms of SAT scores, uh, I have a bachelor's degree. So my SAT scores were good enough for me to graduate from Howard University. Uh, my mother and father both had master's degrees. My father was working on a PhD before he passed. You know, and now I now I'm I'm knowing that I have more education in my little fingernail than he does and his whole clan put together. But I'm not gonna say that and offend him because I don't want the wall to go back up. I'm just defending myself. And that way I'm dropping that seed over on his side of the wall. And then here's what happens. And I and I promise you this is exactly what happens because they've told me, you know, years later when they've left and given me their robe and hood. All right. Um they go home and they reflect, just like you'll go home tonight and you will reflect upon our conversation before you go to bed. You know, you reflect on, on whatever you did during the day. They go home and they reflect also. And they think, you know, gee, you know, I sat down and had a three hour conversation with a black man and we didn't come to blows. You know, so that in, in and of itself is a miracle for them. And um, I think, you know, what he said about such and such makes sense, but he's black. But it was true, but he's black, okay? So they're having a cognitive dissonance thing going on. They know it's true, but they don't want to believe it's true because the source was black, you know? So that, that's a dilemma for them. So they, they, they struggle with this for a while. And every time I get together with them, I water that seed because I keep that wall down. I let, I, I let them be heard, you know? So I'm watering that seed. And then they come to the point where they have to solve their dilemma. Do I disregard the fact that he's black and believe the truth because I know it's true and change my direction? Or do I consider that he's black and just keep living a lie? And when they decide to to believe that to, to accept the truth, even though it came from a black person, that's when I get the Robin Hood. That's a good uh, way of uh, approach. Do you teach classes or give seminars about, about, about this? I do from time to time, absolutely. And just like, you know, I mean, as a police officer, you know, you pull somebody over and they want to argue and this and the other, you, you got to set emotion aside, you know, they want to talk about you and talk about your mother and so forth and so on. You know, you start reacting as pushback. Yeah, you know, they, they, they don't get the ticket and they might even get locked up. But, you know, they, yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> But things go a lot smoother, you know. The, you know, we we can control them, you know, by how we react. You know, you may not be able to change um, their reaction, but you can change your reaction to them, and 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 manipulate them that way. You got a hundred racist Klansmen in a room. 
Mm -hmm. How many of them are struggling with the ideologies that they're being taught? I mean, certainly along their path, they've come across black people who they've had decent conversations with or Hispanic people or whatever. Uh, how many of them are struggling with, with, with what they're being told? It depends upon the area, uh, that you, the demographics of, of the area in which they live, because some of them even went to school with black kids, things like that. You know, they might have been buddies, might have played on the football team, you know, or been in class together. Or if it's some, you know, rural area where that's all they know, then, you know, it might be a little tougher. So, yeah, you, you do have those who, who, who think, you know, am I really doing the right thing? And there's a little voice that's telling them, you know, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be doing this. But they want to belong to something. They feel they need to belong. Now, I'll give you an example of something. And this happens. I, I give anywhere from 60 to 80 lectures a year uh, in person, not, not during lockdown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, I think I think we're going to have a, um, a, uh, a new, like, you know, how you have AD and BC. In terms of the Bible, I think we're going to have something like um, yeah, LD, LD, lockdown. Yeah, yeah, post lockdown, pre lockdown. Exactly. But but you know, I can tell you this: two to three. I lecture at universities, colleges, corporations, synagogues, churches, sometimes police departments, high schools, mostly colleges and universities. And two to three out of every 10 lectures I give, I'll tell you what happens. You know, I'll do a, a lecture and I'll do a Q&A and um, I'll take out some of the robes and hoods and stuff. And then when I finish, still there'll be a bunch of students who still want to ask some more questions. They'll come up to the podium as I'm packing up, they want to touch the robes, whatever. There'll be one student off in the distance and I've come to learn what he or she's going to do. The, that person is waiting for the crowd to go away. When the crowd dissipates and I'm standing there by myself and I'm packing up my stuff, he or she comes over and they're like, you know, look around and then they'll say, yeah, I, I enjoyed your lecture, Mr. Davis. And then I look around some more, make sure nobody's within earshot. And then they say, you know, my mother's in the Klan or my father's a neo-Nazi. And, and that's how I was raised. And, and now I'm, I, I'm here at a university of whatever and I, I'm dating this guy from Pakistan or my girlfriend's black, or my boyfriend's Jewish, you know, and I, I can't bring them home. My parents will kill me. My parents will disown me. And I don't want to tell my friend because, you know, they'll drop me. So they have this big secret that's sitting on their chest and is, is making an ulcer. It's burning a hole in their chest because it has to come out. And I'm the perfect person for them to talk to, you know, and I see this all the time. And here's what happens. You know, they live in some neighborhood that is homogenous. You know, they go to high school with these people. Uh, they all read the same books, they have the same teachers, they swim in the same community swimming pool, shop at the same grocery store, they cheer the same sports team, they probably vote for the same candidate, you know, so they're all on the same page. And then when they come, you know, the parents send them, to, you know, to go get an education, they come to, away to college and guess what? The neighborhood doesn't come with them to college. <laughs> the neighbor, you know, in college, you've got people from all over the country there, and in some cases all over the world coming to that university or college. And you and you come to the realization Jewish people don't have horns and black people don't have tails. And 
you know, they're just as normal as anybody else. And, and you, you know, you realize what you learned from your parents or you learned in your neighborhood was wrong. Now, you know, now you got to tell your parents, you know, they were wrong. And, you know, your parents wanted you to go get an education, but they didn't want you to get that education. <laughs> <laughs> Not that. That's a good thing. So I see this. Education is the key. Listen, you, you want to solve racism, I'm, I'm going to tell you how to solve it. All right. In most cases, when you have a problem, it's trickled down that either causes the problem or can solve the problem. Uh, if you deal with a department or a corporation, say a, a police department, for example, if the top, the brass, the management is tight, the people down on the street are going to be tight. If it's loose up there, it's going to reflect down here. Same thing with a store, a company, whatever. All right, people, you know, people lead you know, lead by example, so it's trickle down. Um, but now, if you want to solve racism with the, with the general public, you, it has to be trickled up. You have to do it up. Because here's what happens: ignorance breeds fear. We fear the things that we don't know. Uh, that those are those things of which we are ignorant. If we do not keep that fear in check, that fear will escalate and breed hatred, hatred and anger. And if we do not keep that hatred in because we, we, we hate the things that scare us and, and they, they cause us to be angry. And so if we don't keep that in check, that escalates and creates and breeds destruction. Because now we're angry, we want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. So a good example of that would be three years ago, next month, August 12th, 2017, in the city of uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, there was a major uh, white supremacist rally, which is just two hours from where I'm sitting right now. Um, on that day, there was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville. There was a lot of hatred and anger in Charlottesville. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and tried to murder as many counter protesters, black and white, as he could by driving his car full force into the crowd. He succeeded in, in uh, injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. Ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred and anger, which breeds destruction. So if you want to solve this problem, don't start at the top. Don't, don't do the corporate department thing. All right. That that works in corporates and departments, but not on this on this type of thing. Forget about the destruction at the top. Once something is destroyed, it's not coming back. George Floyd is not coming back. All right. The next level down is the hatred and the anger. Forget about that. Those are just symptoms. Forget them. Next level down is fear. That's another symptom. Forget about it. Go down to the source, the root. That is ignorance. All right. If you want to, if you have cancer in your bone, you just can't rub a topical cream on top or put a Band-Aid up here. you got to drill down to the bone and hit it with the radiation or the chemo or steroids or whatever you, whatever the, the regimen for treatment of that cancer is. Same thing. you got to drill down to the ignorance, the source. If you cure the ignorance, if you cure the ignorance, 
then there's nothing to fear because you fear what you don't know. If you're no longer ignorant, then you mean you do know. So if you cure the ignorance, there's nothing to fear. If there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to, to hate and be angry about. If there's nothing to hate and be angry about, then there's nothing to destroy. And the good thing is that there is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. That's where we need to put our focus and our money into, education and exposure. Teach people, let them learn, all right? Because that, that way you mitigate that fear and all these other symptoms. And, I, and, and this goes for adults and kids. I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example, um, even little kids. Sometimes I lecture at middle schools and things like that. Of course, I tamp it down a little bit for them. But um, I'll be talking to some kids sitting you know, at their little desks in the rows and stuff, just talking to them casually, whatever. And then all of a sudden I'll say, hey, hey, there's a snake under your chair. And I'll point to some kid in the, in the front row and, and point down by the floor between their legs and say, there's a snake there. Just at my suggestion of there being a snake under this kid's chair in the front row, everybody in the class, even six, eight rows back, scream and throw their legs up in the air because I suggested there was a snake under the first person's chair. And so then they realize that there's no snake there and we all start laughing. And so then I asked them, why, why, why did you all scream and throw your legs up in the air? Oh, you, you hear all these things. Oh, I hate snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. I hate, hate them. You know, they, they scare me. Well, there's your, there's your hatred. There's your fear. All right. So I say, why do you hate snakes? Why are you afraid of snakes? Oh, well, they're, they're, they're slimy and they're poisonous. Well, now there's your ignorance. If you've ever touched a snake, a snake is not slimy at all. It's dry. And not all snakes are poisonous. So there's your ignorance. Ignorance breeds the fear, breeds the hatred, right? So then I ask, I say, okay, we know, I was just joking. We know there's no snake under your chair. I'm just making a joke. However, let's just say there really was a snake under your chair. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it. There's your destruction. And this is coming from a kid. So that's universal. So we need to address the root cause, ignorance. Very good. Chris Casey is saying great philosophy. Uh, don't let emotions rule. Uh, Mark Neal is saying uh, often when we let a person speak, they finally hear their perspective. Uh, doesn't make sense, right? Uh, by interrupting, we never let them hear their own words, right? Exactly. Uh, Mike and Mike McKenna is uh, asking a question. Do you give speech? Uh, where are your speeches public? And uh, how can we for find more, find out more about them? Sure. I, I thank you very much for your questions uh, and your comments. Uh, you can find me at uh, Daryl, D-A-R-O-Y-L, only one R, DarylDavis.com. And my schedule is there, my music schedule. I'm a professional musician, as well as my lecture schedule. It needs to be updated because we're in lockdown now. We're an LD. Yeah, LD. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, but, uh, you know, my schedule is there for, for music and for lecturing. And also go on YouTube, uh, look me up there. You'll see tons of lectures. I've done like four uh, TEDx talks, and uh, you can learn a lot, a lot there as, uh, as well. And uh, I travel the country and the world speaking. So hopefully, at some point, I'll come to a place near you and get to meet you in, in person. I'd love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I don't see any more questions or comments. Uh, I want to let you run. I really, really appreciate you being on Captain Hunter's podcast. Anytime. I really, 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 really appreciate it. And uh, we're certainly going to look forward to having you back on. 
again, I hope wish you the best uh, of success and and luck going in the future. Uh, I do want to ask one, one question, sure. right? There's all these different racial groups, right? The KKK, the the, the neo Nazis, and all these different ones. Do you differentiate between them? Do you see a difference? I know they fight amongst each other. Do you see one harder than the other? What, what, do you see any of that? It, it all falls under the umbrella of uh, of white supremacy, right? And and they keep rebranding themselves. Yes, they all fight amongst each other. You know why? Because when you hate somebody else, you hate yourself. And so, even though they have the same ideology, uh, they they are rivals with one another. Um, and and, you know, and it doesn't even make sense. Uh, you know, but, but, but that's what hate does. And, and to, to be a racist doesn't make sense. So, you know, that, that's what you have going on. Um, so in, in the beginning, it was called white supremacy. I, I'm a white supremacist. Uh, you know, the KKK, whether you, that, that was the first group, the premier group. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a white supremacist. And then a lot of violence, a lot of murders, lynchings, all kinds of stuff, you know, going on. Um, so... It, it, it had a lot of baggage with it, and people began dropping out. There were people who did not like black people or did not like Jewish people, but they didn't want to go and participate in uh, bombings of churches and hanging people and this kind of thing, you know, e either for moral reasons or they didn't want to go to jail or whatever. So they began dropping out, and so the group began to lose membership, right? So then they had to rebrand because the term white supremacist or white supremacy was no longer palatable. It, it didn't draw people in. Uh, it pushed them away. So they changed it to white separatism. I'm a white separatist. I don't hate black people. I don't hate Jewish people. I just love my own kind. Black people can have their own schools, their own neighborhoods, their own restaurants, and that kind of thing. And uh, you know, and I should be able to have my own. We don't have to mix. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 I can go with that. Sign me up. I'm a white separatist now. All right, so the membership began to increase again, right? But the more people you have in there, then somebody slips up and starts all these kinds of violence and stuff, and then membership goes back down. So now white, white supremacy and white separatism are no longer palatable. So then you got to change the name again. Um, so you, you, get, you get a new name. Uh, I'm a white nationalist. Now, I love my country. I'm patriotic. I'm a white nationalist. Well, we all are nationalists for that matter. I mean, we live here, we love our country. So why do you have to say, I'm a white nationalist? You know, why, why can't you just say I'm a nationalist? And, and you'd be just like me, you know, or whatever. Uh, but you know, when you differentiate your white nationalist, that's saying something else. Or I'm a black nationalist, that's saying something else. So um, people say, yeah, yeah, I'm patriotic. I love my country and I'm white. So I'm a white nationalist, sign me up. Membership increased again. And then here comes the violence. Goes back down. So then they rebrand again. Uh, we're gonna call ourselves the alt right. You know, we have the right wing and the left wing, but we're the alt right wing. Um, listen, the old cliche, the old saying, "A rose by any other name is still a rose." So you can call it white nationalism. You can call it white supremacy, white separatism, uh, uh, alt right, whatever. It's, it uh, it all comes down to white supremacy. That's the umbrella. You know, whether you are playing bebop, whether you're playing big band swing, whether you're playing the blues, whether you're playing Dixieland, guess what? It's all under the umbrella of jazz. And I know that for a fact because I'm a jazz musician, <laughs> but I also play rock and roll. <laughs> cool. 
Uh, let's see, one more comment here. Quite insightful. Chris Casey says, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Steve Castos, I love your story. Did you ever feel that you were ever in a serious danger when talking with these men? Uh, oh, there sure. must have been fear and unbelievable tension. Well, I mean, I've had my share of fights. I've had to you know, hurt people, put them in the hospital, put them in jail. Fortunately, those, those have been few and far between occasions. Uh, but, you know, when you're dealing with people like that, those are some of the consequences that you have to deal with. Because there are some people who just do not like you as soon as they see you because you're, you're black, you're Jewish, you're gay, you're Muslim, you're whatever it is they don't like, and they are on you. There's no talking to them. You know, and, and not everybody I talk to is, is going to change. You know, a lot of them have, and, and there will be a lot more who will. But you know, I'm not so naive as to think that everybody is. There will be those on all sides who will go to their grave being hateful, racist, and violent. But we don't give up on them. If somebody, even of that attitude, uh, is willing to sit down and have a conversation, then there is that opportunity, depending upon how you utilize that conversation, to plant a seed. And remember something, when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. So it's when, the, it's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you wanna keep the conversation going. That's a good point. Uh, Karen is asking, uh, I apologize if this has been asked already, but do you speak to black militants as well as white supremacy groups? Okay, Karen. You know, it's interesting you use that word, uh, and I'm glad you did, because I want to thing. When you have a, a group of white people who go out who are paramilitary, and they dress in their camouflage. What was that? White people is a racial classification. That's a, um... <laughs> well, it's good okay. that Alexa's listening there, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, when you have a group of, uh, of white people who, who dress in camouflage and go out in the woods and practice uh, survival tactics and, and shoot guns and all this stuff and they're anti-government, they're called militias. But when you have a group of black people who do the exact same thing, they're called militants. And one word has, a, has more of a negative aggression connotation to it than the other. Militant has a more hard edge than militia. Um, and so, yes, I do speak, I do speak to both groups. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with, uh, with uh, any kind of supremacy, you're going to find other ones on the fringe. I know a lot of black supremacists. I've spoken with them. Uh, I've met a lot of them. Uh, black separatists as well. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you something, Karen. Uh, black supremacists and white supremacists Believe it or not, they get along. They get along fine with each other, all right? Because they both believe in the same thing, purity of the races, no miscegenation. So that's what the white, that's what the white supremacists want. That's what the black supremacists want. So they agree fundamentally on those principles and they get along fine with each other on that regard. It's the ones who, who miscegenate or race mix or date each other that, that, they, have a, that they have trouble with. And I, and I can tell you something, a, a white supremacist hates a white person more than a black person if that white person is involved with a black person. And the same thing with a black supremacist. A black supremacist 
who sees a black person involved with with a with a member of the, of the white race hates that black person more because that that black person is a race traitor a sellout you know you, you're supposed to be one of us and you have sold us out that's the attitude on both sides wow wow well are you good i'm gonna let you go man we've been on for a little bit man. my pleasure thank you very much for having me man and you know, anytime you want to do a part two let me know Oh, absolutely. We'll do a part three, four, five, all, all, in, the, all, all in the LD there, LD 2021. Yeah. There. <laughs> all right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We've been listening to Daryl Davis. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we're going to do this again. Thank you, Mike and Karen and Steve. And I think Todd chimed in here with uh, Talon Hollabuck chimed in with a comment here. Rich. And uh, Mark Neal, Chris Casey, Elaine, Sakia, and everyone else who, oh, geez, what did I do here? Everyone else here who chimed in, thank you so much. And we'll see you guys again next week. Uh, actually, next Monday, I'm going to have Firefighter, who's done triathletes and all this kind of stuff. He's going to talk to us about his uh, coming through a plant. He's coming to and going through plant-based diet. I've been down 15 pounds since I did it. So uh, I want to tune into that one. I want to. What, what day is that? That's Monday. Next Monday, uh, 7.30, same time, next Monday. Yep. Okay. Fire, firefighter, uh, plant, whole food, plant-based diet. Uh, I actually have a nutritionist uh, who's going to be on, and um, she. I actually recorded that episode, so I'm going to release that on Sunday, put that up on YouTube, put it on my audio podcast, and we, we kind of had a nice long conversation about the benefits of plant, a whole food plant-based diet. She hooked me up with a firefighter, uh, who, and, we're gonna, and he's going to tell me about his journey. He's been uh, uh, plant-based for five years, eat nothing but but vegetables and, and plants and oats and rice and all this kind of stuff, and he's changed his diet and all that kind of stuff. So do you we'll do you uh, do you? I mean, I know you slim down all that kind of stuff on those diets, but do you lose any strength when you don't have any? Uh, I haven't lost any. Listen, I I was running before. And here's I, I'll give a quick quick uh, vignette into this. I started, um, you know, I had a triple bypass a couple of years ago. I did too, uh, man. Yeah, uh, you, you remember the zipper player? Yeah, I want to compare scars here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love, um, let me see if I can get mine on here. I got to get rid of this thing here. Anyway, so I had a. I don't know if you guys can see it. Here's the top of my scar. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I so you. I had so I so I went through all that, and uh, you know, this is two years ago. So I started to feel better, and uh, but as time gone on, you know, you start gaining weight back. You start eating the, the same way, and I was sluggish, and I said to myself, "Why I, I I'm not I'm not right." You know, I feel myself not being right. So I said to myself, "Let me try what I've been hearing about whole food, plant based diet, did some research, and I'm I'm running again now. I'm not I, I get tired obviously, but I'm not stopping. I'm running, uh, same amount of push ups. I got a pull up bar, so I'm feeling good and everything is good. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but my my numbers are down for, as far as my cholesterol. Uh, I stopped my my medications. Um, as far as my cholesterol medications um, and all diabetes. my numbers, I didn't have diabetes, no, I, but I was borderline diabetic, borderline yeah. diabetic, and no longer that. So everything is good, right? So I just gave up the meat, uh, eating uh, plenty of fruits and vegetables, oats, uh, rice, and just cut out the butter and mayonnaise and stuff and just eating all that. And, and it's made a, a big, big difference. Um, so we'll talk about all that a little in a little bit. Uh, Sibana has a question for you. Got to hurry up, Sibana. I told this man I'm going to let him go. This is, we're back in church now. This is the third, <laughs> the third uh, closing here. Uh, so I'll give you a second. But yeah, so that's been my 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 journey here. Is uh, and so uh, so we'll talk about it with this firefighter that's going on. Yeah, I'd love to hear that, man. Because I I, yeah. I need it desperately, seriously. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely tune in. And uh, like I said, I'm going to have an episode up on YouTube uh, with a dietitian and uh, going to put it up and, and uh, we'll talk to this guy live and see how his diet has been. And it's really not that hard. It really isn't that hard. You, you, um, uh, you feel I, full? I, mean, I feel full. Oh, yeah. Listen, I eat plenty of rice, potatoes. You don't have to starve yourself. People think no, that you just eat salads all the time. No, That's you say rice. Right. You're talking about, about brown rice, right? Or I eat brown, yep, brown rice, brown rice, beans, uh, uh, quinoa, uh, plenty of potatoes. Uh, I make potato it's soup good, all the really? time. Oh, yeah, yeah. High in carbohydrates. Well, see, that's the thing is, is that it's good carbohydrates. So it's filling you up. Good carbohydrates and plenty of fiber. So you get full faster. So you don't have to eat all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so Sibone is asking, uh, how was he in the clan and he's black? He, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. We're not going to. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that later. So, so thank you once again. We're going to end this off. And I really, really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll do this again. I'll, I'll reach out to you again. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Guys, take care of yourself. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stay on for a little bit if you guys want that question. He was not in the Klan. So he, he was just uh, going to Klan meetings and things like that. Uh, so he was uh, a musician, went to Klan meetings. Um, and how we started off with is uh, he was uh, in the in the at a bar one night. And uh, I guess he uh, started talking to some clan uh, members, started conversing with them, and he told the story about how patient he was and how he was listening to everything that was going on. And uh, he was patient. They were patient. Everybody's talking to each other, got to know each other. Eventually, through time, they, they hooked up on a number of different occasions, went to each other's houses a couple of times, uh, sat, sat by the bar just having a nice beer together, and he was able to convince that particular clan member and other people uh, to come out of that lifestyle. And since then he's built a brand in almost like a type of ministry. Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't know if he would call it a ministry, but he would build some type of network or, or business out of, uh, you know, getting people to come out to clan or different organizations, racist organizations. So that's his story. Um, so once again, you can go onto his website, DarylDavis.com, read about his story. He's got plenty of Ted talks, uh, plenty of YouTube videos. I, I'm going to upload this to YouTube as well. Uh, and so, so, so like that. So, <laughs> so that's the story. I explained it to you. He was not in the clan. I, I know that your husband asking the questions. So that's, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that's the, uh, so that's the answer to that particular uh, question. So, uh, how was he even able to attend their meetings? He was, he was invited, right? So, yeah, so that's, I mean, you got to go, we, we started off with all that in, in the beginning, but he was invited to the meetings, right? He started off in a bar. Uh, where he was playing music at and so through the process of time and being patient speaking with them they eventually invited him to meetings and it's my understanding that not all clan meetings are closed and not all racist meetings are closed because uh they 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 are not secret about what they're doing not all of them some of them obviously are um but uh some some of them you can go to and listen to and speak up and have a conversation so they're not as closed-minded as 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 uh, sometimes people portray so that's not totally accurate um so yeah so i'm looking forward to the next episode and uh so so yeah so uh, we'll be looking for, forward to that and uh yeah so chris casey said he, he didn't know that uh about my my episode yeah so that's one of the reasons why i end up retiring from the pd if you guys can see my scar here pull it down so i had a triple bypass three three clogged arteries in my heart almost two years ago uh, i call my second birthday um 
uh, July 27th. That's actually my brother's birthday. So on my on my brother's birthday, uh, I was uh, I was uh, under the knife and having my chest cut open. Uh, and that's how I celebrated my brother's birthday. Um, so that, so yeah, that's that's just a little bit about my particular story. So that caused me to go on this whole food plant based diet. Uh, you know, a year later or two years later, actually, I just started in April, and I did it because. Uh, I was not feeling right. And the doctors are telling you, you can go back to eating eggs and all this uh, eggs and fish and all this kind of stuff. And and I just wasn't feeling right. I knew my body. I knew what I could do as far as working out. I didn't feel well. I didn't feel like I was back to 100%. And so shortly after that, I would say about a month later, back I started back in April. In May, uh, I start, I went out for a run. I said, I'm going to try to do it and push through it. And it was, it was no problem. I can still do push-ups, pull-ups, uh, still do these different videos and all that kind of stuff. So, so I definitely feel good. And like I said, we'll talk to a fireman who's going to talk about that as well. Uh, Mike McKenna says he has been to meetings and even cross burnings, though. Yeah. So, so they 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 allow people to go. It's it's not as secretive as people. I mean, it's new kinder Jetner clan. Maybe maybe we can put it that way, where they're trying to be more inclusive as to what they're doing. You know, I, I don't know. I I, I have uh, <laughs> I have no intentions of attending a cross burning. Um, but but it's good that people are out there trying to convince other people to come out of that particular lifestyle. I think that type of work is obviously important. Um, so, yeah. So any more questions or comments? I want to thank him for, for, for staying for a little bit. He was only supposed to be up here for 45 minutes. We kept him for almost an hour and a half. So I really, really appreciate uh, Daryl Davis for staying a little bit longer. Really, really appreciate that. Um, I actually am trying to keep these to an hour, but I think the conversations are so good that I've been going for an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes and stuff. So, <clears throat> All right, ladies and gents, no more questions or comments. I really, really appreciate you guys tuning in, and I'll see you guys on uh, Monday, 7.30, uh, Firefighter, and uh, we got some good episodes coming up. been securing some good stuff. Uh, anyone who tuned in for uh, that episode we did on Monday, I just contacted the nurses, and they're going to come on. And uh, from that uh, show, uh, Conscious Sedation, she just texted me just now, said they're good for a couple Mondays from now. So we're going to have them back, and we're going to talk about you know what they've been dealing with with COVID and their their podcast and all that kind of stuff. So some good conversations we're going to be coming up with. So. Yeah. Yes. Some of their meetings, uh, Karen, are open. Some of them are not not all of them. <laughs> some of them are. Yeah. It's a kinder and gentler uh, uh, KKK. Yeah. Kinder and gentler. You know, they got to keep up with the times, too. They got to be PC. They can't be discriminating. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's all weird stuff to me. It's all weird stuff. But it's good that they do allow us to go. I actually watched it. There was a Klan meeting one time or not a Klan meeting, but a racist type of meeting. Um, and they were, it was on YouTube and they actually let people, uh, you actually could see black people sitting in the back of the audience. It was, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So, all right. I'm really going to go now. Uh, and, uh, I'll see you guys. I got to go eat guys. Take care. See you guys Monday. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. See you guys. And I'll talk to you. Take care. Much love and peace.